Father God, thank you for another uh, beautiful day in community, um, being able to be together and uh, think about you, think about different ways that you uh, have made yourself known uh, in the world and through those who love you and believe in you. God, just ask that you be with all those who are hurting this morning, all those who have lost, uh, all those who have depression, uh, those who are uh, sick. Lord, for all of those who only you can give comfort to, we ask that you give freely and generously of that comfort. Um, and Lord, help us, give us eyes and help us to see those around us uh, who may be hurting, uh, who may be fighting silent battles. God, give us the eyes to see them and equip us with love um, to be a reflection of your love for all. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank y'all for being here this morning. Kind of getting into the last uh, two or three classes. Um, this morning, uh, I wanted to talk. Last week, we spent a lot of time talking about just illuminated manuscripts and kind of the origins of that all the way up through uh, uh, the mid-medieval period and um and I love illuminated manuscripts, as you could tell last week. Uh, th this is another form of Christian art that began um, uh, kind of in the 8th, ninth century uh, and is really still uh, relevant, uh, especially in the Catholic tradition and in the Eastern Church. And that is uh, the art uh, category of reliquaries or... Uh, decorated boxes or caskets or crosses or anything that holds uh, the relics uh, or bones or cloth or scrolls or anything that's uh, associated with kind of the what began as kind of a cult of relics. And a lot of times that whole, the, the, the thought of that in our tradition is crazy, you know, that we would venerate objects or uh, although we all do it, we all do it in different ways, whether it's our memorial garden or whether it's, a, you know, there are different things that we assign kind of a, a special divine uh, association uh, to, uh, but kind of in the more, uh, in most other traditions, especially again, the Catholic tradition before the Reformation uh, and then the Eastern Church from um, from early on to even now, um, the idea of assigning objects that belong to or even the bones of uh, a saint or a martyr or an apostle or a pope uh, is, is very uh, prevalent and significant and has been for a long time. And a lot of times it gets criticized. It was criticized by Martin Luther. You know, it was criticized by Henry VIII <laughs> during the Reformation. Uh, and we would probably criticize it as well theologically, but I just wanted to put this scripture up because it's kind of sets um, the scriptural stage for this whole idea. Acts 19, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. The whole idea of reliquary uh, or uh, the veneration of holy uh, objects or the material remains of someone who was uh, holy 
are considered holy or considered an apostle um, is is all about proximity um, proximity is divine in other words um, I can't touch the apostle Paul but if I can touch a cloth that touched him it has power scripture says so the recorded scripture says so and so that idea thought uh, was was very popular as a pure popular religion um, idea based on scripture now the church took advantage of that of course uh, and we talked about this maybe a couple of weeks ago uh, maybe not in the context of reliquaries but um, how as the cult of relics began to take hold in 7th and 8th century especially in Europe um, churches began to compete for relics of the saints to bring in and to draw parishioners which also brought their money and bought, brought their land uh, and patronage helped build bigger cathedrals and all of that so it was um, almost a marketing thing that you know like we tend to do took something that was you know basically a, a wholly good idea and, and turned it into a business you know and capitalism didn't start in America started in the European churches in the ninth century um, but this whole idea of relics again is uh, and we we see this you know even in the catacombs we talked about early on the whole idea of having meals or masses in the catacombs for proximity's sake you know that there was something holy uh, we go and celebrate a meal at the tomb of a martyr or a saint um, and it, it it has some kind of uh, divine proximity power uh, and that's kind of where the saints days came from came from the saints meals um, and then eventually the distribution of uh, what we call top shelf or first class uh, relics which means a bone typically a material remain of, of a person the distribu distribution of that throughout the churches both in uh, the west and the east um, became kind of a, a, a big business uh, here's some what the early fathers said. St. Jerome said um, he was especially a strong supporter, defender of the use of relics, arguing that the honor given to the relics of martyrs is ultimately addressed to the one for whom the martyrs died. Of course, the fact that he's having to clarify that means that the, the opposite view or, or a distorted view of that was already working its way both through uh, the clergy uh, and the priesthood and as well as... Uh, the populace in general. St. Augustine emphasized that we do not build temples for these same martyrs, for they are not our gods, but their God is our God. Certainly we honor their reliquaries as the memorials of holy men of God who strove for truth, even to the death of their bodies, that the true religion might be made known. Again, the kind of cult of martyrs began with, I mean, the cult of relics began with the relics of martyrs. And we talked we talked about before how important um, martyrs were uh, in the early church, uh, and then as kind of the we start running out of martyrs' bones and uh, shrouds and capes and whatever it is that belong to the martyrs, we start discovering the church starts discovering uh, the bones and relics of others, more important people. In other words, we have the. We have Stephen's, you know, this one church is built around, you know, the relic of a leg bone of Stephen, you know. 
well, then the competing Turks as well, we found the bone of Peter, you know, like we, we have an even better bone, you know, or a better relic. And further, the art that is associated with those relics, in other words, our reliquaries, our art, art you know, we build a beautiful reliquary around this relic, and then we build a beautiful cathedral around that reliquary. Uh, again, there was just a one-upmanship that, that started happening really pretty early. Not as much, again, in the Eastern Church, although relics and reliquaries and the art associated with reliquaries is a consistently popular in the Eastern Church. It wasn't a competitive thing. It was just, um, it was more rounded. I don't know the West always <laughs> gets into that. Uh, uh, not, I mean, not only because you have... Um, the, the biggest thing, I think, is because the church was so tied into the um, uh, feudal system and, and, um, and politics that very quickly became um, corrupt, much more than what's happening uh, in the Eastern Church. Speaking of the East, the Byzantine Empire did not have uh, the same resources, uh, so to speak, up. So relics were imported or translated beginning in 356 with the bodies of St. Timothy, Andrew, and Luke. In other words, uh, we haven't had as, you know, the Byzantine Empire didn't have as much luck finding <laughs> pieces of the true cross. And so uh, they got sold, borrowed, stolen. Um, this can stay down at the bottom. Even monks, uh, a scholar notes, became adept at stealing records. Uh, relics from each other's monasteries the better the relics in their monastery treasure the greater the fame of the monastery the greater the patronage was the more they could build and uh, could be argued the more good they could do as well um, uh, tend to more think of it in uh, terms of building churches during this period though uh, reliquaries kind of be began from the very earliest period they, they were uh, typically caskets or when I say casket I don't mean in the uh, typical the way we use the casket meaning box small box sometimes uh, holding uh, ashes or bones but they a lot of times ossuaries were stone uh, and then they they move from that to kind of simple uh, Anglo-Saxon Celtic uh, boxes to um, uh, silver precious jewel up into the really highly detailed enameled caskets that uh, were happening in kind of the French, uh, French workshops in the early medieval period, which we'll talk about in a second. But this is the kind of the first um, and largest uh, reliquary, uh, one of the first. This is the the reliquary or uh, for the relics of the Magi, um, the Three Kings given to Constantine uh, circa 314. Uh, they weren't contained in this reliquary when they were in Constantinople, uh, but they were right in Milan, Constantinople Falls. Uh, they get moved uh, over to Cologne, France, in that area. Um, it took 44 years to build this reliquary. This is a, this is, very atypical. It's about six foot, uh, six foot long, and it's like a, it's it's like a church. In other words, you have two long kind of casket-like boxes, and then a, a third that sat in the transverse, um, 
and it's all gold, and it's all, this is very Eastern, what, what uh, would become more in keeping with Eastern because of the, um, there's no enameling to speak of. Uh, most of the gold work is relief work. Uh, and this supposedly contained uh, the bones of the three kings who visited uh, baby Jesus. It took 44 years to build, uh, and then a cathedral was built around the reliquary uh, that took 632 years to complete. Uh, that church in Cologne, um, the Cathedral of Cologne, is now the, still the largest Gothic church in Northern Europe. Um, we don't build things that take 632 years to build. A generation. 440. 440? That's when it was completed or that's when it was built? No, no. Uh, 440 just stopped the national. Oh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, there are some things that take 600 years to build. Uh, yeah, it's that funny. Have any red pillars of the earth? But yeah, Ken Follett. That's a great book that kind of just goes way into how long it takes. And the, the tradition of father and son and grandson and those who were trained as uh, artisans uh, who had the long view on participating in something they, that they thought was the ultimate act of worship uh, to God, which was to use their hands and their sweat and their blood to create something that would last forever. Uh, and... Um, yeah, it's pretty awesome. Do any professionals have access to these relics? Like professionals, you said? Like yeah, the church won't typically doesn't let professionals in. Like, in other words, to run chemical analysis or anything. Make like sure that. that all the pieces of the true cross. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Matt are the same wood. They they don't want them to find out that it was 1870. The wood comes from 1870. Yeah, uh, typically no. I mean, there are exceptions. You know, the Shroud of Turin. There are other things that are controversial uh, pieces that, you know, uh, carbon dating and different things. That, but the church doesn't really consider, in fact, we, I mean, we tend to think of as a, you know, post-enlightenment Lockean, you know, view is like, well, we want to see evidence of that. Uh, it's, it's actually the bone of St. Peter, like we could actually know that, you know. But the church has never taken that view. In fact, uh, in, in many of these reliquaries, such as this. This is the uh, Hildesheim reliquary of Mary, which supposedly had a piece of the sh of Mary's cloak or shroud. Um, this was ninth uh, century, uh, eight fifteen or so. Um, and um, the, the story behind this was interesting. The um, Holy Emperor uh, Louis the Pious uh, and some hunters went out into the woods and found what was revealed to him to be a piece of the shroud, of Mary's shroud. It was stuck in a rose bush and he started trying to extricate it and it would not move. So they took that as a sign that they should build a church there. That's where the church of uh, the cathedral of Mary um, should be. And so they built a reliquary around the rose bush uh, basically a box and then started building a church around the box. It's a really interesting story. But the relic is not there anymore. That's the case with many of these things. Like the, what was originally there and venerated and 
was the whole purpose of even building this entire cathedral doesn't exist anymore. Like nobody knows what happens to you. You know, in many cases, you know, there is no bone in this. There is no relic. The church doesn't care. That's not the point. Um, it was then, obviously, to have the relic, but nobody really got to see it anyway. They only got to see the reliquary. That was the impressive part. Um, uh, for example, <laughs> this is a, a reliquary. Uh, this is very typical of kind of early medieval, 11, 1200s, uh, Central European reliquary that probably that housed an arm bone. You know, there's a piece of femur of John the Baptist. In fact, the, there, uh, in the Cleveland collection I talked about last week that had the traveling um, exhibition here at the Frist, there, there was an arm reliquary very similar to this that supposedly had an arm bone of John the Baptist in it. And the reason that, you know, the, the reliquary is built, and this is to scale, you know, be the size of a real arm. So once a year, the priest in that church would bring this reliquary out. Uh, and he would hold the arm as an extension of his arm and, and go, you know, and have people come up and he would touch them, you know, with the arm, those who needed healing, those uh, who believed in whatever regenerative power that the relic itself had. They don't know what's in this, you know, they don't know <laughs> if there it could be the arm bone of a, a femur of a goat or something, you know. That's almost not the point. You know, the point is the belief uh, and the faith. Um, yes, somebody's had a question. What is the typical? I know that we're kind of past the, the time of the catacombs. Sure. And the burial process there. Right. So are most people in sort of a family graveyard or graveyard of churches? What are most? It's just surprising that so many bones like this, random bones being found. So mm -hmm. what is the typical process of burial? Are you talking about the bones of the saints? Yeah. <clears throat> so are the saints being buried differently than the common people, or do you know? The, the, that? Well, the, the truth is, of course, is that most the, of the found relics themselves were fabrications. Sure. Uh, they're, they're, What's they're, the story they're telling? Uh, the, the stories get wilder the more competitive uh, we get. I, I don't know. I've forgotten the story of the first finding of the true cross, but it was the wife of Constantine who went on a pilgrimage who came back with a piece of wood and said, I found this. It's part of the cross of, of Christ. Uh, I mean, there are some instances uh, uh, where there, you know, there, there is uh, legitimate evidence behind some of those stories about, or this is the traditional burial place of X martyr, you know, or an early pope or church father. And so this is where we got the bones, or the bones he was dug up, distributed among the churches. I mean, it sounds insane to us today. Uh, but it's pretty much all from an inspired finding. Yes. Yes, I mean they're they're well, like St. Peter's Basilica is built on the traditional grave of or tomb of St. Peter. There's some documentary evidence to believe that that's true, you know. But in terms of the remains of, uh, you know, until you get much later, you know, we know where Thomas Beckett's bones are. You know, we know where he was buried. 
that's you know 1180 or whatever and so we we have uh, we have you know the the Beckett rail queries which were very numerous around uh, you know 1200 that were distributed throughout Europe and churches were you know they really competing for them in many cases those contained some shard of a bone of Thomas Beckett because uh, that time the the cult of relics was so rabid that's like sorry we lost Thomas can't wait to cut his bones up you know it's gonna be great business for the churches you know but I, I would say for the most part and again I don't say this it's almost like when my daughter says is this you know the creation story true you know it's like I don't know, the whole idea of it being truer than true, you know, like the, the, the point is God created everything, you know, and as a lot of kind of the, the rabbinic tradition is, you know, like it doesn't, the stories themselves don't matter as much as the truth that it tells about God in the stories, you know, uh, that, that's kind of the way, you know, um, it, it's kind of the way it works with the, the cult of relics. Now it got out of hand, obviously especially in the Western European church. Yeah. Yes. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, was it uh, was it was she alive and died later? Like she wasn't. Yeah. Okay. The finger, yeah. <laughs> like Lennon, Lennon and Marks, mummified. Yeah, yeah, and that I mean that's that's a movement that happens quite a bit later. Because then it, it's like, well, let's get rid of uh, all the ostentatiousness and, you know, the doubt of does this rel really have a relic in it? You know, that began to creep in, especially toward the Renaissance period and kind of more as we move toward Enlightenment. So then it became, let's let's let it, let it's the shock value that we want, and that brings its own. You know, we see the Elephant Man bones at Michael Jackson's house. You know, like it, it brings its own uh, marketability. Yeah, Mary. to get our minds around I think um, uh, I, I think the more we move toward the Reformation and the church uh, and, and the clergy and those who held uh, the power over the written word the more we move toward the Reformation the more uh, people of faith look to concrete um, things 
Uh, and I think that is part of the whole cult of uh, relics, especially later on in the medieval period. Now, early on, I think there was a true, uh, again, we see Jerome and Augustine writing about the importance of honoring the martyrs. That's one thing. Um, but I, I think part of the obsession with uh, relics like that, so much that you would go steal relics from a... Um, it, it began to move away from the marketability thing to some true concrete thing that we can hang on to because we don't know what to believe from our men of God uh, who who were obviously, you know, very corrupt by that time. Let me move through a couple more things uh, and then I'm going to pass around. Or, or I can go ahead and start passing around just for this. Uh, <laughs> later, later, because I just want to get stuff around. I always run out of time. Um, Ninth, uh, tenth, uh, eleventh, twelfth century, uh, especially in um, kind of the Eastern um, churches and, and pilgrim sites, we we start seeing. I've passed around maybe pieces of this before, uh, pieces of these, but this is a reliquary cross, which is a two two pieces of a cross that are hinged, that have an inner compartment, and then have a. Um, uh, a loop at the top that could be worn. These were bought at pilgrim sites, holy sites. You go to a church and you could actually purchase some part of uh, a relic from vendors on the side of the street, right outside of the church. And it became, it's almost like uh, also really popular in uh, Central Europe uh, lead flagons or, or ampulla that held holy water, you know, from the fount at a particular church. You could buy those. Uh, and you would, it would be lead uh, with the imprint of the saint, you know, or the, the legend around explaining what the water was and what its power was. And then how those, you know, tight you tear the lead off like those wax candies we used to have, you know, that have the juice in them. Tear that off. You pour the holy water on whatever's ailing you or over your crops or whatever, and then you toss the lead thing. We found those lead things. I mean, it's, they're great discoveries, you know. Lead doesn't hold up that well, but every once in a while, depending on how much pewter it has, we, we find those ampulla um, in Britain all the time, and they're always fun. So this is a reliquary cross. Uh, it's still sealed, so I don't know what's in there. So I'll let, this is a uh, 10th, 11th century pass around just because you can, so you can see it. Um, this is a, this is like a later, uh, maybe, 16th century reliquary and, and you can again the lights are low but this is kind of a triangle hinged device that could be worn uh, and it has these two little compartments for stones that are now missing uh, this is uh, would, would have been gilt uh, copper alloy but it actually has these little pieces of animal skin that you can tell probably uh, some kind of scroll or some kind of piece of cloth that was reportedly and uh, yeah the cloth is still in this box so you can you can kind of look at take a look at that uh, this is again a little later maybe 16th century and then just because I like this and I found it this is a kind of an anglo-saxon this is a really early whalebone uh, anglo-saxon reliquary that's found that has a runic inscription on the inside and see these little hinges that you also find in Anglo-Saxon books uh, we find those as well so here's one of those hinges that are 8th eighth, eighth century or so, so I pass those around to you. 
so yeah, this is just an example of what was going on in other culture. A lot of, again, um, be, start becoming elaborate uh, with the materials that you have. You recognize those intertwined uh, relic uh, uh, Anglo-Saxon slash Celtic designs that we talked about last week in Book of Kells. Um, this is an Eastern um, kind of version of the same thing. Uh, you have the, uh, reliquaries begin to start having jewels and, and enameled uh, cloisonnet or champlevé um, enameling, um, and then the the jewels and then the legend that, of course, in East we find are um, in Greek, heavily abbreviated Greek. There's our arm. Uh, this is an early Thomas Beck. Thomas Beck, the cult of Thomas Bellic relics. Be Beckett relics were huge uh, in France and England uh, from about after he died. You, you all know the story of Thomas, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Henry II sent his, not got an argument, but sent his knights, chopped his head uh, on the altar at Canterbury, and immediately it was like, uh oh, I shouldn't have done that. You know, started walking it back, as we say. <laughs> and, uh, ended up taking symbolic lashings at uh, Westminster. Uh, it's a whole thing, but Thomas Beckett became a huge celebrity uh, in his martyrdom uh, in England and France, and so you see tons of reliquaries. This is a very early one. This is nylo or silver inlay. Uh, the box is gold with the big ruby on top. Uh, these begin to they begin to look much more like this uh, toward the 12, 1220, 1250. And again, this is an oak box with um, gilt copper, that's uh, Champlevé, which I'll show you a short video in just a second, uh, with no sound, thankfully. Um, but it's basically a, a workman, you know, carves out, uh, carves out um, tunnels and, and all these designs, and then he fills them in with crushed glass, which many times was Roman mosaic glass, is a big medieval source of uh, crushed glass was they would you know break up Roman frescoes uh, I know they would just recycle get those that glass which was very you know expensive crush it up put it in here and then fire it in a kiln really really hot it would melt the glass and create this enameling uh, and then the little relief putis or saints uh, uh, and again this box would have held a piece of Thomas Beckett you know in some church, and here's a, a later, uh, later 13th century version of that. And you can see the scenes. There's Thomas Beckett getting the sword at the altar, and then this is him being laid uh, to rest. These were, I mean, there were probably a hundred of these spread all over Europe, um, different things. Which makes, I mean, that sounds like a big number, but I guess in terms of looking at all of Europe including France. Most of these were made in Limoges, France, which was a big center of uh, art, uh, both in uh, illuminated manuscripts and in um, especially enameling. All the best enamelists um, were working in Limoges at that time. That's why finding this was so fun for me, uh, even though I found some beautiful things uh, in my metal detecting career. This one, as ugly as that is, uh, is great for me because it, it is one of those saints, uh, one of those 
uh, one of those guys, the head carved in relief. Uh, what's great about uh, this guy, I found this in, uh, Colche in and around Colchester, in and around Wicks Abbey and, and Ardley in Colchester. Uh, not far from where I found the, the gold John the Baptist. What's cool about this, his eyes, and of course this is all laminated and spent a lot of years in uh, fertilized ground, so a lot of the, a lot of it's gone. You can see a little bit of enameling uh, there, just a little bit of the detail, and then of course the piercing to attach it to the reliquary. But this is awesome. The mouth and the eyes are Roman glass, or, or uh, these little eyes are enamel. Uh, it doesn't look like much, but it's a rare find. I've always thought it was uh, cool. Um, because the tour of your house? When the tour of my house? <laughs> it's by invitation only. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm <laughs> you can come to my house anytime, Miss Sandy. I'll, I'll give you a tour. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so, and then here's a, a version of the cross that kind of uh, gets passed around. A lot of times you do find, uh, you know, the orange figure or find Christ. And sometimes these are gold, sometimes they're gilt silver with nylo inlay. Um, lot, lots of different uh, versions of all of that. I'm going to show you this video real quick because uh, this video was commissioned by uh, Victoria Albert. Uh, museum and it's a it, people still practice this art of enameling and this guy who's an expert they commissioned him to kind of do it how it would have been done using period tools glass and all of that uh, and you might want to it, it is captioned it doesn't have sound but it is captioned and uh, so if you, you might want to stand up if you think you might not be able to see it so Yeah, sometimes you find the relief in just the faces alone. That's the discount, discount <laughs> versions. <laughs> These are punch designs after the fact. Uh, a little punch tool makes all these designs by hand uh, after the. What's that tool called, anybody? Yeah, that tool. There's the. Check that drill out. Isn't that cool? <laughs> That's seriously medieval looking. Bow drill, it's called. <coughs> old trick of keeping it steady here, putting it in wax so that you can work with these gravers. You can see all of this is, this looks so easy. I've done it before, it's not easy at all. Um, it's just amazing, you can see where his finger, his finger is worn down there from holding that graver in place. But 
mentions the Roman mosaics here. There's the glass. Is that work all being commissioned by the church? Yeah. Uh, yes. 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 Talk about during the period. Yeah. But why are they doing it now? Well, he he's doing this now specifically. Just yeah. He, he right. He and there he's using a, a quill, <laughs> a quill to put in the uh, enamel or glass powder now. And you typically what they would do is do one or two colors and then they would fire it and then they would let it cool and then they would sand it and then they would do another color and fire it again. Um, again, really hot kiln. This is not period. They did not have digital <laughs> digital technology, which makes it all all the more cool. Then we go back and do more colors or do different details. You sand off the excess with a stone, which makes the copper that wasn't uh, enameled pop out. Uh, and then after it's done, you gilt it with real gold, uh, like we talked about last Oh, yeah, you do bright cut engraving, which is just this wiggling of a graver, which looks really easy, but it's not. <laughs> Uh, then, then it would be gilt with real gold uh, leaf, which survives amazingly well. I mean, I've, I've dig relics from this period that still have uh, the majority of their gold uh, gilt. So, yeah. Anyway, any any questions or any comments about anything? We know some that Otter Creek trivia about reliquaries. Oh, really? One of our elders wanted a good picture of Peter's, the box with Peter's bones. Right. Leaned over the votive candles and caught on fire. Really? <laughs> In Cologne. Yeah. In Cologne. Yeah. Very nice. All right. So the moral of that story. <laughs> it's just listed among our Creek trivia. Trivia. Okay. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, yeah, so much information, I know, but fascinating field of study. Crazy Christians, man. <laughs> Maybe if you are really good Christian, we'll take your bones and spread them all over <laughs> South Alabama. It's like, we got Bobby Joe's bones down here. Yeah. Thank y'all for being here.